Reflections on Herman Melville's Billy Budd by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 2 Simple nature remained unsophisticated by those moral obliquities which are not in every case incompatible with that manufacturable thing known as respectability. That's one of those great Melvillian uh, sentences, you see. Uh, he was an upright barbarian, much such perhaps as Adam presumably might have been ere the urbane serpents wriggled himself into his company. So all these references to his innocence and uh, questionable references to uh, sophistication. Because sophistication is really uh, part of the factitious life, or can easily be. Billy has one defect, a stutter. A speech defect. Though in the hour of elemental uproar or peril he was everything that a sailor should be, yet under sudden provocation of strong hard feeling, his voice, otherwise singularly musical as if expressive of the inner, of the harmony within, was apt to develop an organic hesitancy. In fact, more or less of a stutter or even worse. In this peculiar, Billy was a striking instance that the arch interferer the envious Marplot of Eden still has more or less to do with every human consignment to this planet Earth. In every case, one way or another, he is sure to slip in his little card, as much as to remind us, I too have a hand here. So this little, this speech defect was Satan's point of entry, the devil's point of entry. And I think maybe there's a uh, something to meditate on there. That might it not be that the devil, if you don't mind me being anthropomorphic here for a minute, if might it not be that the devil knows where the vulnerabilities are, the weaknesses are, and uh, knows how to massage that little area to put. That's where our buttons can be pushed. The uh, Jungians understand that those that those vulnerabilities are the places where we, where we are more, most likely to, to be, uh, to, where complexes are most likely to be triggered. And uh, Satan is the one maybe who tries to get us to, to expend our strengths in the, in the task of covering up our weaknesses so that we won't expend them on something more interesting. So Satan might be the voice that reminds us of how terrible those weaknesses are and how socially uh, 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 suspect they are and how we must keep them to ourselves. And uh, Satan would be the first one to want to get us to abandon the doctrine of original sin because that way we could regard all of those things as being utterly unique to us so that it is something I must hide because nobody else has one. And in hiding it, I can use all of my superior qualities uh, in, the, in the task of covering up my inferior one. And uh, therefore, they become neutral to any larger task. And it's just a reflection here of how the, uh, the envious Marplot of Eden might take advantage of, of our vulnerabilities and handicaps. But then... Melville goes on, 
the avowal of such an imperfection in the handsome sailor would be evidence not alone that he is not presented as a conventional hero, but also that the story in which he is the main figure is no romance. So he's not a hero, and he's not being romanticized. He's a very simple, innocent young man uh, with a stutter. And the stutter is provoked when he is scandalized. But we'll get to that later. The Bolivitant joined the fleet in the Mediterranean, and... Uh, Melville says this, at times it is dispatched on separate duties as a scout, and at times on less temporary service. But with this, the story has little concernment, restricted as it is to the inner life of one particular ship and the career of an individual sailor. Well, I think the story does have to do with this. He says the ship gets ha, has to leave the fleet and go on its own, uh, sometimes just for a short while to do a little reconnaissance, uh, but sometimes for longer periods. But I think there is something important to that. And that is that the, the fleet has over it the admiral. And the admiral and all that he stands for represents a kind of, uh, a kind of code and law and rules and procedures. But when the ship goes away from that, uh, all of its cultural apparatus has to be on board, including its mythos, its laws, its, its, the execution of the laws, and so on and so forth. Everything has to be done internally. And when the crisis comes on the Bolivitant, it's when it is away from the fleet. And I think this is all part of the probing that Melville is doing. As the same, He did the same thing in Moby Dick. And it's similar to what Conrad does in The Heart of Darkness. Uh, it, one has to leave the cultural framework behind before one can really see the ritual, the primitive ritual reasserting itself. Because... The, the codified law, the whole system, uh, is a modern, rationalized version of the ritual. So that if it can be carried out in terms of that, it's ne it doesn't become visible. There's a little bit of that in, um, a hint of it at least, in, in uh, Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Early in that poem, he says, The ship was cheered, the harbor cleared, merrily did we drop, below the kirk, below the hill, below the lighthouse top. Now, of course, he's talking about the way it looks like you're sinking down. Kirk is an antique word for church. So below the kirk, below the hill, below the lighthouse top. It's, that's the heart of darkness. When you get out there beyond the reach of the cultural form, uh, and then you see the thing itself beginning to emerge in the crisis. Well, anyway, back to the story. It was the summer of 1797. In the April of that year had occurred the commotion at Spithead, the first minor rebellion, uh, mutiny, followed in May, one month later, by a second and yet more serious outbreak in the fleet at Nola. The latter is known, and without exaggeration in the epitaph, as the Great Mutiny. It was indeed a demonstration more menacing to England than the contemporary manifestos and conquering and proselyting armies of the French directory. To the British Empire, the Nor Mutiny was what a strike in the fire brigade would be to London threatened by General Arson. You see the metaphor? The General Arson 
The arsonists are the French Revolutionary. And London is British society. And the British fleet is the fire department. Charged with intervening, uh, creating a fire break in the channel between what's happening in France and what's happening in England. The English fleet was, quote, the right arm of a power then all but the sole free conservative one of the old world. You see? It's the last great hope of mankind. It's that mentality. We're besieged with this evil empire or this dark, terrible thing that's going to consume us. And we must gather ourselves together you know, the famous headline in the London Times, uh, Channel in Fog, uh, the continent cut off. <laughs> there you have it. The right arm of a power, then all but the sole free conservative one of the old world. The Blue Jackets ran up with huzzas, the British colors with the Union and Cross wiped out. By that cancellation transmuting, the flag of founded law and freedom defined into the enemy's red meteor of unbridled and unbounded revolt. Reasonable discontent growing out of practical grievances in the fleet had been ignited into irrational combustion as by live cinders blown across the channel from France in flame. You get there the whole problem the context in which this, this story is being uh, lived out. Well, the fear is a absolutely legitimate fear. Melville is not romanticizing the French Revolution. What's involved there is, is this crisis of distinction. In another context, Girard has written, the modern crisis, like every sacrificial crisis, is to be defined as the effacing of differences. And this is the great anxiety that's captured in this passage in Melville and, and imputed to the British at the time. This is a crisis that is a serious crisis. The crisis of distinction will result in uh, a reign of terror, as it did. But the reaction to it, because the reaction to it is, is on the part of a cult apparatus itself can also become a sacrificial uh, phenomenon. Now, notice this. Uh, the Spithead Revolt was settled with a concession. The Spithead uh, Mutiny was settled with concession. Those were legitimate claims. And there was something worked out. A compromise was worked out. But, but then Melville says, Yet at the Nore there was an unforeseen renewal of insurrection on a yet larger scale. Emphasized in the conferences that ensued by demands deemed by the authorities not only inadmissible but aggressively insolent, indicated, if the red flag did not sufficiently do so, what was the spirit animating the men. This is the critical moment between the Spithead Mutiny in April and the Nor Mutiny in May. You get that transition 
comparable to the, to the shift of Billy from a merchantman to the man of war. That is to say, a transition from a crisis dominated by mimetic desire to a crisis dominated by mimetic rivalry. Because in the Spithead mutiny, the legitimate grievances, legitimate claims, were still what we can uh, recognize as mimetic desire. You have certain rights, privileges, and, and, and material resources, or we do not. We want them. And so the authorities could work something out. And what happens a month later at NOR is that, is that demands are made which are so blatantly aggressive that it's clear that those making the demands have more interest in the fight than in the demand. So that mimetic rivalry has taken over. To some extent, the Nor mutiny may be regarded as analogous to the distempering eruption of a contagious fever in the frame constitutionally sound and which Anon throws it off. That's what Melville says. In other words, it's curable. It's curable. It can be thrown off. But there's a lacuna in the text. It doesn't refer to what... It just says, well, somehow it's curable. And very shortly after that, we learn this. Of these thousands of mutineers... Were some of the Tars, another name for the sailors, who not so very long afterwards helped to win the naval crown of crowns for Nelson at Trafalgar. To the mutineers, those battles, and especially Trafalgar, were a plenary absolution and a grand one. So the same sailors that were involved in the Nor mutiny very shortly afterward were loyal to Nelson in the greatest of all naval victories at Trafalgar. Now, something has happened in the meantime. What happened? They were making demands that they didn't, that, that were absolute, that were absolute. And that uh, the, the authorities couldn't possibly uh, uh, meet. And now, shortly thereafter, they're being loyal to Nelson at the great victory. What has happened? What happened to the public execution? There, from the yard arm, is hanging Richard Parker. And so, uh, things are restored. And Nelson, now, but there's even more to this. Advances in naval technology um, were uh, making some of the heroics of past uh, uh, naval uh, encounters uh, a thing of the past. And uh, Melville says, a certain kind of displayed gallantry being fallen out of date as hardly ap applicable under the changed circumstances, uh, there were what he calls martial utilitarians who thought that Nelson's uh, prominent position on the deck of his ship during the battle was a little foolhardy. Here's how he describes it. Prompted by the sight of a star inserted in the victory's quarter deck, that's Nelson, Horatio Nelson's ship at, at Trafalgar, Prompted by the sight of a star inserted in the victory's quarter deck designating the spot where the great sailor fell, these martial utilitarians may suggest considerations implying that Nelson's ornate publication of his person in battle was not only unnecessary but not military, nay, savored of foolhardiness and vanity. They may add, too, that at Trafalgar it was, in effect, nothing less than a challenge to death, and death came. Now, these martial utilitarians, do not know about the rights of man, R-I-T-E-S. 
and they do not recognize the role that Nelson played by prominently displaying himself and dying in the cataclysmic uh, encounter at Trafalgar. In other words, Nelson's dramatic death has to be factored into the formula uh, for victory at Trafalgar that became so important to the British. And so Melville says, if the name Wellington, Wellington was the one who won the, the battle at Waterloo, I mean, that, in, in a way, that's really the key one. He says, but if the name Wellington is not so much a trumpet to the blood as the simpler name Nelson, the reason for this may perhaps be inferred from the above, namely, that Nelson died in that battle, so that he provided both the victory and the sacrificial uh, victim. Uh, and the culture was reconvened, finally, in the final instance, by Nelson, by Nelson's death, by Nelson's victory and Nelson's death. And it takes both of those, in a sense, to bring everybody back into convention. And then he goes on. At Trafalgar, Nelson, on the brink of opening the fight, sat down and wrote his last will and testament. If under the presentiment of the most magnificent of all victories to be crowned by his own glorious death, a sort of priestly motive led him to dress his person in the jeweled vouchers of his own shining deeds, if thus to have adorned himself for the altar and the sacrifice were indeed vainglory, then affectation and fusion is each more heroic line in the great epics and dramas, since in such lines the poet but embodies in verse those exaltations of sentiment that a nature like Nelson, the opportunity being given, vitalizes into acts. In other words, the great poets have always said that it takes that death, the sacrificial death of the great one, to resolve the crisis. The great dramatists, the great tragedians, and the great epic writers have all said that it's that that resolves the crisis finally. And Great souls like Nelson uh, turned that insight into acts. It's the same way that the great poets turn it into poetry. So again, the need for the sacrificial victim in order to resolve the, the crisis. Pavel goes on, Yes, the outbreak at, at the Nor was put down, but not every grievance was redressed. Not the less impressment, for one thing, went on. Its abrogation would have crippled the indispensable fleet, a fleet the more insatiable in demand of men because then multiplying its ships of all grades against contingencies present and to come from the convulsed continent. There you have it again. We have to tolerate these, what's giving rise to grievances, we have to tolerate them because across the channel a revolution has occurred because of unredressed grievances that has put us in an emergency situation so we don't have time to redress our grievances. Hello, human history. And then this wonderful Melvillian line, discontent foreran the two mutinies and more or less it lurkingly survived them. Lurkingly survived them. In other words, watching Richard Parker dangle or being awed by the, the sacrificial death of Nelson, 
uh, might not be enough. In other words, the, the cult mechanism is wearing thin. It only, its, its benefits are short-lived. So it was that for a time, on more than one quarterdeck, anxiety did exist. At sea, precautionary vigilance was strained against relapse. At short notice, an engagement might come on. When it did, the lieutenants assigned to batteries felt it incumbent upon them, in some instances, to stand with drawn swords behind the men working the gun. Emergency situations. The air is thick with this anxiety. Because we have to respond to what's going on over there in France. And what's going on over there in France is a full-scale manifestation of the cultic process. What's coming out of the mouths of the mob is rights of man. And what's coming out of the mob activity is the R-I-T-E-S of man. The guillotine is rolled out. So you get both of those happening at the same time. But on board the 74 in which Billy now swung his hammock, this is a masterpiece sentence, very little in the manner of the men and nothing obvious in the demeanor of the officers would have suggested to an ordinary observer that the great mutiny was a recent event. And you go back and read that sentence again. Very little, which means a little, in the manner of the men and nothing obvious in the demeanor of the officers would have suggested to an ordinary observer that the great mutiny was a recent event. It lurkingly survived them, he said earlier, see. It's under the surface all the while. And everybody knows it. And Captain Edward Fairfax Veer is the captain of this ship, and he is a good man. Never uh, An officer mindful of the welfare of his men, but never tolerating an infraction of discipline. Called Starry Veer, because uh, a, a kinsman of his... Uh, appended that uh, title to him from an uh, Andrew Marvell poem. And the lines quoted are these. This tis to have been from the first in a domestic heaven nursed under the discipline severe of Fairfax and the starry Veer. Now, his name is Edward Fair Fairfax Veer. Edward Fairfax was a Renaissance poet, a British poet, who translated Tasso's Jerusalem Delivered, which is a romantic epic about uh, the First Crusade. So it is a story... Edward Fairfax, uh, the, ec the association with Edward Fairfax is a poetic mind given to romanticizing the uh, great deeds of Christendom, namely the need to arm the Christians to arm themselves and take back the holy city. So he's Edward Fairfax. Veer. Now, Veer could come from any number of uh, Latin possibilities. I think probably the most likely, if there is one at all, would be virior, which means fear, but uh, perhaps inflected a little bit, means um, a respect born of fear. We get the word to revere. It is a respect born of fear, which may give us some etymological background for Captain Veer.
the captain reads books about actual men and events, but occasionally unconventional writers like Montaigne. Montaigne wrote, If my mind could gain a foothold, I would not write essays. I would make decisions. But it is always an apprenticeship and on trial. You see, Montaigne was uh, wrote essays about the human folly and uh, the way we humans are. So, Captain Vere has not only read biographies and history, but he's read a little Montaigne. He knows, if you will, a little bit of the uh, of the um, existential problem. He knows a little bit about the relativity of truth, just enough to be scared, if you'll allow me to suspect that, because he goes on to say... Um, Captain Vere had got to be established in him some positive convictions which he forefelt would abide in him essentially unmodified so long as his intelligent part remained unimpaired. In view of the troubled period in which his lot was cast, and that's essential, this was well for him. His settled convictions were as a dyke against those invading waters of novel opinion, social, political, and otherwise, which carried away, as in a torrent, no few minds in those days, minds by nature not inferior to his own. But he has made a conscious decision to hold on to a certain few principles, you see, to stand by these principles. But it's a decision that's a little too conscious uh, to be without its uh, negative consequences, rigidity. Uh, he recognizes that if you let go of these, who knows where it might end up. See? While other members of that aristocracy to which by birth he belonged were incensed at the innovators mainly because their theories were inimical to the privileged classes, Captain Veer disinterestedly opposed them, not alone because they seemed to him insusceptible of embodiments in lasting institutions, but at war with peace of the world and the true welfare of mankind. And he's right about that. He opposes what's going on in the name of French Revolution. You can't embody that in lasting institution. And that is the double bind of culture right there. And it's the double bind, by the way, that Virgil ran into at the end of the Aeneid. Virgil had before him Homer's text showing Priam and Achilles falling into each other's arms and weeping. But he could not have recourse to it because what Virgil wanted to do is to create something that was susceptible to embodiment in historical institution. And there's a kind of Virgilian quality, I think, to, to Captain Vere. He knows that those, however, however valuable those sentiments are, that they are not capable of being institutionalized and as incapable of being institutionalized, those that are spouting them will soon be seeding war. And there's the double bind. And he's not a bad man. He recognizes that he's in the middle of a plague and uh, that emergency measures may have to be taken. And he has steeled himself for the task. Claggart, the last guy to uh, want to call attention to, he's the petty officer. He's the uh, Claggart is the master at arms. And then it says about his face that it was an ordinary face except for the chin. The chin was beardless as Tecumseh's 
and something of the strange protuberant broadness in its make that recalled the prints of Reverend Dr. Titus Oates, the historic deponent of the clerical drawl in the time of Charles II and the fraud of the alleged popish, popish plot. Two references to him. Tecumseh was a, a Swanee chief who directed the Indian resistance to the white men in the Ohio Valley. But when the Indians were defeated, Tecumseh joined the British in the War of 1812. So I think Tecumseh might represent here one who joins the enemy of my enemy. That'll come up in just a second. But the real uh, echo here is, is Titus Oates. Titus Oates made false, turned out to be false, allegations of a Roman Catholic plot to seize power in England, which led to a reign of terror, in which at least 35 of the people who died died because of testimony of, of Titus Oates, and he was later convicted of perjury. So Titus, so the, the echo is Claggart's Titus Oates, which is to say the scandalon, the one who provokes the crisis and points the finger, or the, the Diabolos and the Satan who provokes the crisis and points the finger and solves it that way. And he's the master at arms, like Iago, or like Hitler. He's someone who instinctively understands, instinctively understands the whole mimetic mechanism. He knows how to play on, if he's Iago, he knows how to play with the mimetic desire. He knows how easily it is to convert it into mimetic rivalry. He knows how, or to put it another way, he knows the whole thing about being the scandal, creating the crisis, pointing the finger. So in that sense, he represents a, a type of person who instinctively, the firebrand, who instinctively knows how to create scandal and to and to polarize the situation and create, point his finger and create a new victim and reconvene his cult that way. And so we and Melville are apt to interpret the claggarts of the world as being wholly other. Now Melville says, for instance, to pass from a normal nature to claggarts one must cross the deadly space between. And this is best done by indirection. And, of course, the story is the indirection. But, of course, he's not wholly other. The gulf between Claggart and the rest of us is not a categorical one. In him, a universal human impulse is simply more acute than it is in most of us. Having thought that thought, I was struck by the word acute, and I went to find out what that meant. And, of course, it uh, has a medical implication. It means, in the medical reference, a disorder that moves very quickly from its onset to its crisis. And so we can see in Claggart uh, someone who has in him a universal proclivity, which in him is given to bringing the crisis quickly on. And in the rest of us, uh, the crisis, if it is to develop, is allowed to uh, run a more leisurely course. The word acute comes from the Latin word for to sharpen, the verb to sharpen. I imagine the first poets to use this word would have been able to hear in it 
the knife on the whetstone or the razor on the strap. And so the word acute itself has a kind of ominous quality to it. This is an acute situation requiring a decision. A decision, by the way, also comes from the word, the, uh, the, the root of decision is to cut something, to dismember something. In terms of his relationship to the social organism, this is a curious metaphor, but tolerate for a minute. The metaphor for Claggart might be a kind of reverse hemophiliac, whereas in a hemophiliac, an otherwise minor injury can cause bleeding not easily arrested. A person like Claggart is similarly predisposed to the shedding of blood. He is the first to recognize and seize upon the sacrificial opportunities presented by the social event. And until others can be drawn into the drama and induced to play their designated parts in it, he is capable of performing multiple roles in the sacrificial rite, which he, at first almost single-handedly, convened. So before we can take the measure of Claggart, we have to become better at recognizing the ritual which it is his special genius to set in motion. To make the point that we are on the verge, but only on the verge, of such recognitions. Let me refer to a column that appeared this week in the New York Times as an example both of how palpable the evidence is for the survival of cult rituals in modern society and of how reluctant we are to take notice of such evidence in assessing our cultural and social and spiritual crisis. This was a column written by Jane C. Hood, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of New Mexico. She begins by referring to an event that we've all probably heard of, which was a brutal uh, group rape uh, that happened in Central Park. The eight uh, young men who committed this crime were pretty much ordinary kids. They were not uh, particularly crime-prone. And so everyone seemed to assume that this crime was a, an important symptom. But nobody could quite determine what it was a symptom of. So there were a number of uh, commentaries on this crime. It, 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 had a great, it had seemed to take on great symbolic significance. So a number of people began to try to sort it out. And there was a number of articles in the, in the Times about it. And the last one was this column by Professor Hood. Her analysis is that the problem is all the other analyses have, have overlooked the central question. The central question is the question of gender. She says, like the proverbial fish who cannot describe water, Americans see everything but gender at work in the April 19th assault. She then goes on to quote a 19, uh, uh, what she calls a classic 1971 study of 646 rapes in the Philadelphia area almost half of which were pair or group rapes. Like the recently reported rapes, she writes, the offenders in group rapes from this 1971 study were disproportionately very young, 10 to 19 years old. And the study also found that the group rapes were much more likely to involve violence far beyond what would be necessary to restrain the victim. Now, Professor Hood says the 
the salient feature of all this is gender. And so to get to the bottom of this, we have to sort out what's the difference between a rape-prone and a rape-free society. And she says the difference is that a rape-prone society is one in which an artificial barrier is maintained between the sexes, our society being one of them. Now, I'm the last person to, to uh, propose that sexism does not play a major role in a lot of the funny business in our society. But to attribute the recent increases of rape in our society to artificial barriers between the sexes is to ignore the almost complete collapse of those barriers in the relevant population, namely late teens and 20s. It is, in fact, the wholesale elimination of these barriers that most clearly distinguishes the social environment of today's younger generation from that of its predecessors. Now, I'm not talking about barriers to, to employment. I'm talking about the, the, the thing that gave our adolescents such electricity. I used to have to get my date back to the dorm by 10.30. And today, my date and I could go to the same dorm. What I'm saying is, it's easy enough to fight the last war. I'm not sure what the final fate of barriers is to be. But I do feel that in a world influenced by the Christian article of faith, which says that God incarnated in a Nazarene born in a stable who was executed as a criminal, that unless such an article of faith can be expunged from the cultural record, the fate of barriers will be that they will either have to fall or become transparent. So once again, it is the gospel influence on the environment which makes, very slowly over time, artificial barriers recognizable as artificial and calls them into question. But that's not altogether 100% good news as they fall, a critical period is entered because something that is a barrier to those on the outside is a source of group identity to those on the inside. The fish-water analogy might be more aptly applied. It is only in passing that Professor Hood notes that the Central Park attack seemed an expression of, quote, adolescent male bonding ritual. An adolescent male bonding ritual, which she says, is inherent in group rape. Now, there are three words in that phrase, male bonding ritual. Professor Hood, they all three need, need to be investigated. Professor Hood has chosen male as the one to investigate and says the problem is gender. seems to me if we go to the latter two uh, words in that phrase, bonding ritual, we're into a larger category and one that has broader implications for the cultural crisis. Lest you think I'm just making this up. What I, the point I'm trying to make is that we are on the verge, but only on the verge, of recognizing some things. In an article that appeared on the front page of the Times shortly after this crime was committed by Michael Kaufman, uh, the article begins this way. The eight adolescents being held in the rape and beating of a jogger in Central Park were bound to each other by ties of neighborhood, rituals of the playground, and common rites of passage 
that began long before the rampage last Wednesday night. This is another little allusion to some other thing that's operating here, but nothing is made of it. It's the, the allusions are there, and then it's passed over in favor of another analysis. I want to quote to you T.S. Eliot because uh, T.S. Eliot's going to make a comment about classical liberalism. I preface it by this allusion he makes in the same essay from which I'm quoting. He says, the attitudes and beliefs of liberalism are destined to disappear, are already disappearing. They belong to an age of free exploitation, which has passed. Okay, with that caveat, here's what he says. That liberalism may be a tendency towards something very different from itself is a possibility in its nature. For it is something which tends to release energy rather than accumulate it to relax rather than to fortify. It is a movement not so much defined by its end, but by its starting point, away from rather than towards something definite. Our point of departure is more real to us than our destination, and the destination is likely to present a very different picture when arrived at from the vaguer image formed in imagination. By destroying traditional social habits of the people, by dissolving their natural collective consciousness into individual constituents, by licensing the opinions of the most foolish, by substituting instruction for education, by encouraging cleverness rather than wisdom, the upstart rather than the qualified, by fostering a notion of getting on, to which the alternative is a hopeless apathy, liberalism can prepare the way for that which is its own negation the artificial, mechanized, or brutalized control, which is a desperate remedy for its chaos. Well, so let's, let me try to translate this into the interpretive idiom we're using for uh, Billy Budd. Breaking down of, the breaking down of barriers where there is still a psychosocial dependence upon cultic forms with inevitable scapegoating features to them, can only lead to more spontaneous and less formally sanctioned ritual enactment. So the problem may be, I say this in no way to, to uh, disprove the fact that there are, there's gender involved in these things too, but the problem may be not that artificial barriers are still standing, uh, but that there are very few of them still standing, and those that are still standing are not providing any of the social benefits uh, that barriers were invented to provide. And the result is an increased uh, use of homemade cult ritual to try to provide a source of group identity. Billy Budd can be read as a parable of the survival into modern times of the primitive sacrificial cult and the narrative depiction of the capacity of this primitive cult to commandeer the social, political, religious, and legal apparatus of a culture unsuspected of having any latent sacrificial proclivity. But the fact is that modern cultural structures are evolutionary mutations of more frankly sacrificial systems. And under stress, reversions to their primitive prototypes can be expected. This discovery is analogous to finding that the, the family pet, a pit bull, say, or a Doberman, when overexcited can turn into a vicious creature, 
capable of the sort of violence for which his loving owners are unprepared and for which his ancestors were carefully bred. The best diagnostic tool for understanding the basic features of the sacrificial reappropriation, that is to say, the sacrificial cult commandeering a respectable cultural uh, apparatus, the best diagnostic tool for appreciating that is the Bible. And one of the best literary characters for appreciating the way this ancient victimization cult is phased in until it is all but indistinguishable from the respectable civilized procedures of an orderly society is Claggart. And, of course, the other one is Iago. We, Shakespeare gives us a bigger picture of Iago. We have Claggart. We just get to, just a couple of hints, really. But Claggart is in large measure the personification of this primitive regression. But Melville does not allow the chief symptom, Claggart, and the chief diagnostic tool, the Bible, to meet directly, but only indirectly. He says, for instance, at the time my experience, the narrator says, at the time my experience was such that I did not quite see the drift of all this. It may be that I see it now. And indeed, if that lexicon which is based on holy writ were any longer popular, one might with less difficulty define and denominate certain phenomenal men. As it is, one must turn to some authority not liable to the charge of being tinctured with the biblical element. How much truer that is today than when he wrote those words. Well, I want to uh, become liable to the charge of being tinctured here for a minute and uh, go back and do what amounts really to a kind of a glossary of terms. But I want to take terms, uh, and, and then we'll turn and use them on, on the text as we go through it. I want to use terms from the New Testament, from Gerard and from Melville, and see how they cross-reference, and then uh, access them as we, as we try to interpret the story. And, of course, the New Testament terms are the most complete they really do define this this phenomenon. And the terms best used to do so are these. The first is the diabolos. In the New Testament, the word for uh the word for the devil and the word for Satan are used more or less synonymously, but the but uh the the great value to us is that they're both in there because they have different nuances. The diabolos is uh the one who throws the line across and causes uh Controversy causes division, rancor, uh, uh, reciprocal animosity. The Satan is the accuser. The word means the accuser. So the Satan is the one who, in the midst of that, the resulting rancor caused by the diabolos, the Satan is the one who says, it's his fault or her fault or their fault. And so polarizes the situation into those that have formed now a new sense of social unanimity and, and the source of pollution which, uh, to, to which they secretly owe their unanimity. And thirdly, the scandalon. The scandalon is the, one, the New Testament term for the stumbling block, uh, but it's always used to, in ter- to refer to a person or the role that a person plays in the social order. A scandalon is one who, who uh, is contagious of this, of this social uh, virus, and who causes somebody to be tripped up into it, who sucks somebody into that controversy, who, uh, who pushes, their, pushes their buttons and gets them to play out that melodrama or to engage, uh, enter into that melodrama. 
the Pharisee is the upholder of cult distinctions who becomes a tool willingly or unwillingly, sincerely or insincerely, of the victimization cult. The Pharisee is the one who carefully and jealously guards the dividing line between those who are in and those who are out, the pure and the unwashed, the righteous and the sinners, the good guys and the bad guys, and who so carefully and jealously guards that line is willing to draw the line, as we say, and make someone who has stepped over the line an example to those on both sides of the line of exactly where the line is. And so we'll say, this person has to be punished so that we can make an example and draw the line. So that's the Pharisee who would say, as they do, as instances in the gospel to Jesus, uh, shouldn't we stone her? You see, she crossed the line, etc. And the chief priest is the Caiaphas of the peace. The chief priest presides over the whole thing and provides it with its with its most magnanimous rationalization. He's the one who says it's better that one should die than that the whole nation should fall apart. Uh, and and uh, so he he lends it an air of of uh, weightiness and authority. So those are the New Testament terms, and they're really complete. What uh, Girard adds is a uh, Girard uh, adds an insight into what already exists in the New Testament and provides a kind of early diagnosis of the of the situation. The Typical diagnosis of the situation would be one which starts when the crisis is full-blown. It's right there. You can see the agitation is palpable. What Girard does is that he introduces a pre-symptomatic form of the crisis, which is an essential ingredient in the onset of the crisis. So he talks about mimeticism, that is to say, this incredible human capacity, uh, uh, proclivity to take each other for models for what we do and what we want. And he says that the mimetic conflict or mimetic rivalry has a predecessor stage, which is mimetic desire. We learn from each other what is desirable. And in, in motivating ourselves on a desire which is secretly mimetic, we inevitably come in conflict with each other. There's a sale, one item left on the sale table, Somebody across the table reaches for it. I, I, when they start to reach for it, I think, well, under the circumstances, I'd like it too. And you get mimetic. That's the, the simple-minded little parable of mimetic, the way mimetic desire leads to mimetic rivalry. Under the abrasions of a mimetic rivalry, barriers begin to fall down. And there is there are no distinctions left. Uh, I want to spend a little time on this in just a second. But before we go to it, just to say that there are no barriers left as the barriers collapse there results the crisis of distinctions which leads directly to the crisis to the sacrificial crisis the sacrificial crisis is resolved by the sacrifice the expulsion uh, the excommunication the execution of someone considered uh, to be beyond the pale and to be the source of the problem and in the ritual act of expulsion expelling or executing or excommunicating, 
there is reconvened a set of distinctions and a cult group willing to live within that set of distinctions. And so the, the process starts all over again. It's complicated enough, but before passing on, I want to uh, complicate it more by uh, bringing for a minute into this the uh, apocalyptic uh, symbolism. The way the New Testament is laid out and the way the New Testament kerygma has come to be developed, there is uh, in it this sense that because of the Gospels, that the Gospels make the long-term risk of doing business as usual apocalyptic. After the Gospels, the price we pay for business as usual will eventually be apocalyptic. This, t this took a lot of boiling down. As the Gospels continue to compromise, decode, dismantle, and generally incapacitate the sacrificial cult and the structural forms contingent upon it, the only alternative to love and nonviolence is the apocalypse. That is, if we remain dependent upon the sacrificial mechanism, even unconsciously and surreptitiously so, the collapse of artificial cultural barriers made inevitable by the gospel will disintegrate into an intolerable crisis of distinction where mimetic antagonisms multiply without restraint and lead inevitably to sacrificial episodes, each more atrocious than the last, since under the circumstances none can any longer be expected to achieve sufficient unanimity to dissipate the reciprocal hostility. To the extent that uh, historical business as usual is attempted in an environment where the gospel is, is uh, compromising the sacrificial cult, the capacity of the sacrificial cult to achieve cultural order, then that business as usual process will eventually become apocalyptic. Because what happens is, if the sacrificial episode does not achieve a cultural in-gathering, then the tendency is to perform one the next time, which is more awesome, uh, more awesome in being more, uh, more gruesome, involving more victims, being more audacious, uh, and it goes on and on and on until you get six million Jews being killed, you see. Or the mimetic twins of the, uh, the superpowers willing at some point, at least, to wipe out the planet if it takes it. So that this thing has until recently been moving at such a, at such a sort of evolutionary pace that it's been possible to ignore the overall tendency. But beginning with the French Revolution, and uh, other things more recently, and now it seems to be, like I say, we're, we're now beginning to, you pick up the paper and you can see on the front page of the New York Times references to rituals. Uh, there's something that's coming up to the surface here. And it's really a it's, a, it's a race between the gospel and the effects of the gospel. The mere presence of the gospel in the environment is destroying the, the cult apparatus. And 
the conversion to the gospel way of life uh, is the only alternative to the natural conclusion of the sacrificial thing, which is apocalypse. Now, I, I say that as a person of faith. Now, other people might want to say it another way. I find, I, I find it not only convincing but compelling in terms of everything I know about my life and my experience and what I see happening. 